this point in our service that I would invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 35, where we are going to hear from the Lord today a passage as we come close to the end of our series in Genesis. I have titled it, Blessings and Hardships from Our Patriarchs. If we think about this, we have been in some heavy passages, and this is in many ways heavy as well, but has a little bit of a different framework to it as we think through the completion of the covenant with Jacob. So hopefully by now you are at Genesis 35, and I will read this passage for us as this is the inspired and errant and authoritative Word of God. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called his name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and then poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then, the journey, then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, 
the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abram and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of our God. Let us pray. Lord and our God, as we come to your word today, we see truth. We see you. We ask that we would be reminded that you are at the center of all things and that you this morning would feed your people from your word. We love you, Father, and we pray and ask that anything that I have studied that is not in alignment with your word would pass by your people's ears and that which is you would place in deep places. In your name we pray, through Christ. Amen. So I remember back one of the very first times when I was playing baseball in middle school that I hit a home run. So for those who don't know, I played baseball pretty much my whole life into college, and I loved baseball. But I truly remember the very first time that I thought that I was going to hit a home run, or maybe it was second or third time, but it's a very memorable moment that stuck out to me. For there was a pitcher who came up, and he left this ball up in the zone. It was hanging. It was there to feast upon. And I took it deep. Oh, such pride, such joy. As many of my heroes and those who had gone before me had done in the field of baseball, I, I started off at a very gentle pace. For you're awarded four bases in baseball. You can take your time. As I start trudging down the path, as Kirby Puckett has before me, one of my childhood dreams, George Brett and so many others, I'm just thinking, man, does this feel good. I rounded first, I headed for second. Around the time I'm hitting second, I hear the, the crowd erupt with cheers. Uh, this is the parent section, really, for middle school baseball. I think, man, that's pretty awesome. They must think that I'm doing something phenomenal. So I rounded second, and I'm heading for third, as I passed by the shortstop, he even bopped me on the back of the head. He was probably mad, or he was just praising how great I was. Man, this is such a good feeling. So I get to third, and actually standing on the bag is my third base coach. Hastings, what are you doing? Why didn't you stop at second? I'm confused. You're awarded four bases after all. What, what, what could this be about? Uh, Coach Ben, I just hit, hit the ball out of the park. I don't know if you're familiar with the home run, but that's what I did. He laughed. Hastings, you didn't clear the fence. It was just shy. Go take a seat in the dugout. Oh, such embarrassment. Such pain. It was so embarrassing as an 11 or 12-year-old boy as I head to the dugout. Oh, my whole team is just in a roar at this point finding it hilarious, the pain of what I thought was a blessing, the joy of getting to be awarded four bases. Now, believe it or not, I was not very fast then, and I'm not fast now, but the joy of four bases that I could take my time, oh, that sounded phenomenal. Instead, what actually came was years and years of hardship that I played on that team for a couple more years. My nickname became Almost. <laughs> so I almost hit a home run, 
I did hit others, but I almost. So anytime I heard that name or heard that nickname, I, I would cringe a bit, for it left an impact. 25 plus years later, here I am standing before you with vivid memory of that one. I hit many home runs. I don't remember all of them. I remember the not home run that was my first. But so much of what we see actually here in Genesis 35, I believe, mimics this story here. This, this parallels the story of what I experienced as a young man that so many times we experience and see the blessings that are coming and we become focused upon them. Then we come up short. And with coming up short, there's often hardship. There's things that are unexpected. Things like nicknames of almost. Things like in this passage where we see the atrocities happened of chapter 34 last week that Randon put, put forth for us. We walk through these things and we begin to wonder a very important question that I think is the most important part of this passage today for us, that why are the blessings of God so often paired with hardships? Each of us feel that as we've walked through Genesis. Each of us feels that in our own life. Why, God, do you give blessings? I see the promises that you have laid out in your word. Boy, do I feel these hardships. Now, it might be a little bit of a silly thing like, middle school baseball, or it might be far more personal of some tragedy or something going on in your world this day that is far more serious than not hitting a home run. But here's the important thing that we see in this, because in chapters 33 and 34, what happened for us was Jacob did not make it back. He came all the way home, but stopped at Shechem. He stops at this place that is a trade route, that is close, He's not quite home. Now, actually, in the blessings and the promises of God, there is much that I actually believe that we are going to receive from this patriarch today. And much of my goal and hope today is that you would be encouraged, that you would trust in the blessings of God, for there are certain covenants, there are certain promises. God is working in your life in certain ways despite the hardships and the frailties and the frustrations that still exist. He is at work. He is certainly good to you, even when it feels like He's not. Again, I would encourage you to trust in the blessings and promises and workings of God in your, your life, despite the hardships and frailties that we all feel the weight of. Now I do hope that you are experiencing a joyous and a good season. But there may be something, something small or something large, that you are needing to be reminded that God is a covenant-keeping God. As we move into our passage, there are three sections and three things that I would like for you all to see. That is that of correction, that of confirmation, and that of completion. So we think about this. The correction comes to us in verses 1-8. through eight. The confirmation of God comes to us in verses 9-15. through 15. And then finally, we see the completion in verses 16-29. through 29. Yet there are still trials and hardships in these verses. So at this point, I would encourage you all to look with me in your Bibles to verses 1-8. through eight. And as we see here, I believe we see something really important. 
A lot of people, a lot of commentators have spent time speaking about these opening verses of chapter 35 and have talked about how there is something that is going on because Jacob has actually stopped here a little bit short. Shechem. And some commentators actually believe that this is going back to Genesis 12 and the promises that Abram had received and that others have received in the family of Genesis 12, 6, and 7. God promised Abraham that he would pass through Shechem and at that land would give this land to his descendants. So some commentators believe that that is actually what is going on, that he stopped in an attempt to be faithful. I don't believe that's what we see here, and actually commentators are divided, and so you can tell where it is that I stand and what I believe the Scripture is pointing to in these last few chapters, and what it is that we actually see here is not a picture of faithfulness, but we see a picture of Jacob returning to the very things that he's comfortable with, the very things that he knows provide goodness for him. For you see, Shechem's a trade route. It's a really, really good place to be. There's comfort that should be provided in this land. But as we get into our passage 35, there's something really important, though, that we see when it is and how it is that Jacob now is beginning to step forth and showing us something from this lesson of the patriarchs of what it is that God has done, of how it is that he is planning and wants to show forth the leadership of Jacob. So look with me in verses 1 through 4, and we actually see this, that God speaks to Jacob. That's the first thing that we see in regards to our first section of correction that Jacob does not receive and walk in correction until in verse 1, as it says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel. Now God is giving a lesson to our patriarch, and he's telling him here of what it is that he needs to have done, what it is that he should have done already, where he stopped for 10 years in this place of Shechem, in this good trade route, and something that is true to Jacob is that he looks after his character. He is wise. He's a great businessman. He looks after his family. He could have been looking back to Genesis 12 and pleading the promises in this place, but this is not really the right place to stop. He should have been going to Bethel, where it is that God had promised to him that the covenant would be confirmed and returning to his father's house, that of the place of promise. So we look here at these first four, first four verses, and we actually see what happens here, is that there is a bit of correction that God is saying, hey, Jacob, you've gone this far. You've come all this way. It has been a 30-year journey. You spent 20 years with your father-in-law. You spent 10 years now at Shechem. Finish the journey. Be a leader. Step up and do the things that I have told you to do. And actually, what's really interesting in this passage as well, we see a second thing that Jacob now takes action. He tells his family, get rid of your idols. It's really interesting because if we look at this passage, it points back to where just a few chapters earlier, Jacob and his family were escaping and fleeing, and what happened with his wife? She put the worthless idols underneath her. But they came with them. So here we are, ten years later, they're still with worthless idols. They're still in the house of Israel, a mixing of the things of God that should not be there. The things that he has promised are true. But in many ways, the people of this house, of the house of God, are actually looking upon things that are man-made and believing that they will provide. Believing that they will give sustenance to them. But what do they do at this point where Jacob says, hey, now we've had this tragedy here of chapter 34. There's a horrible attack that has happened these brothers who have actually gone forth and they've taken the sign of the covenant and uses God's faithfulness in an unfaithful way to the very people of that land who are inhabiting, that they went out and killed 
They didn't provide peace. It was not peace in the name of God that was provided. It was murder. Outright murder. Done in the name of God with the covenant signs attached to it. What embarrassment must be felt here in this spot by Jacob as he's walking through this. And actually, as mentioned last week, and he has every right in the world, the people there to actually enact judgment because this was way too extreme. To go that far with the attack of what happened, it was an awful attack, but we see what has then happened is that there has been sin that perpetrated more sin that could lead to the death of the people of Israel here, right? In fact, what we actually see is we see that first Jacob responded in the first four verses when God called him, the people put away their idols when God told them to through Jacob, the third, in verses 5-9, through nine, there's something really important that's going on here in these as well. That what is going on with the protection of the people? Is it because Jacob is mighty? No. God actually is the very one who is protecting the people here in this land of Canaan. He is the one, as it says in verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So once again, the hand of protection is only if God is with them, as God is blessing them, as God is going before them into these places. It's not Jacob's hand. He's not the leader that he should have been in the first place. There's God leading his people. There's God correcting Jacob here in these verses, and in his mercy and in his kindness, he is, he is shepherding these people in such a way that only a good and faithful God does. Now, yes, he has grown as a man. Yes, Jacob is far, far more faithful than he ever was 30 years ago. 20 years living with the in-laws will do that. But we also see that in this 10-year journey of journeying this last little bit and falling short leads to consequences. And now leads to correction from God as it is that he's walking through in these verses. It is the living God who is protecting them. It is the living God who has the right to enact vengeance for, for Dina. It is the living God who has the right over all of life. Yes, these people do have the right, technically, the people in the land of, of having taken uh, Hamor and his family to enact further vengeance. But actually, in this passage, we're seeing that the correction only and should come from the living God. There are times, like Jacob, that we walk through a place like this, and maybe we have actually enacted correction, and maybe it is that we have done things that we should not, but God in His kindness, God in His mercy, is actually being merciful to each and every one of us in places like this, that it's not because we're good, it's not because Jacob was good, but it's because of His perfection, His mercy, His ways that will always lead the people to a path of correction, to becoming more like Him, to looking more like our God. And actually to that end, it's really beautiful here in this next section because I think that leads us to what we need to see uh, after having this correction from God is the confirmation of God that comes in verses 9 through 15. Now God confirms in a couple of very real and powerful ways. The first thing that He does is He changes the name in verse 9 and 10. He changes his, his name in verses 9 and 10 to that of Israel. And you might be sitting here, and actually I'm sure that all of you are, for you are all astute, and have, many of you have been a part of this sermon series that we've been in. Didn't God in Genesis 31 actually change his name already to Israel? 
Actually, the answer is yes. But how has he been living for the last 10 years? He's been living in Shechem. He's been living at a trade route. He's been living in a place that has led to his, his own daughter not believing in the covenants of God, to go out, as it said last week, uh, and, and looking to the people and wanting to be a part of the people in some way or another. That the family of God is not wanting to live under the protection of God. They're wanting to live and be a part of the world. But what does God do? He actually confirms again in kindness and mercy that He is a covenant-keeping God, that He is with them. He's never going to leave him. He's never going to forsake them. So yes, the first thing we see there is that He changes His name to Israel. But this is the powerful thing that we actually see regarding our second point of that of confirmation, that there's one more thing is that he speaks to the certain promises, the growing generations that will be. As it says in verse 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now think about this for a moment, because as we saw, what did Jacob do two chapters ago in chapter 33? He went and bought land. So this is good land. But he is the heir of promise. He is the one who is going to inherit from his father. He is the one who has blessings from the family line. Why would you do such a thing? Could it be fear? Could it be shame? We're not told. There, there's speculation here. could be that these very years of the Lord correcting and refining him led him to a place where he did not feel like he deserved the mercy of God, that he did not deserve the covenant of God. God still gave that covenant to him. He confirmed and gave these things to him and said, again, Jacob, it's been ten years, but your name is Israel. There's this incredibly powerful theophany, I think, here that we need to see this picture of what it is that God is doing and blessing his people and confirming his will to Jacob. And actually, after this, we don't see theophanies like this. We don't see that to be something that actually happens again in other places in, in the rest of this narrative. But it's powerful because this is what Jacob needed. He needed to be reminded of the covenant, that God is keeping his covenant in the midst of this hardship, in the midst of this shame, in the midst of this embarrassment. I actually said at the end of chapter 34, I stink among the people. So as he's one who is sitting here and saying that my name is not what it should be, my name is not what I have planned for it to be in this trade route in this city, God says, yeah, I know. I'm still your God. I will still keep these promises for you. Your name is still Israel. You are not Jacob. You've been living like Jacob for the last 10 years but now it's time for you to be Israel. You have started this journey. You have finally gotten rid of the idols. You finally are doing these things. You're heading back. The correction of God is working. The confirmation of God is playing out in His life. We're seeing the certain promises that God is a merciful God in so many powerful ways here. Many ways, when we think of and look at the transgressions of sin and the ways that we, we actually stand against the very things that God wants to do in and through His law, I think that there's something really powerful because Jacob is seeing his sin. And as he's seeing his sin, he's being drawn towards repentance and he's starting to do something different. 
When we think of repentance and sin and what it is that is actually starting to go on in his life here, I wanted to look, to look at the words of Thomas Watson because I think he has a very powerful picture of what it is when a Christian is drawn out of their sins and how it is that they move in a direction of repentance. So Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, he, he calls it a recipe to move away from sin and towards repentance. Now, that's an unusual thing of, of a recipe. It makes me think of cooking. But a recipe has steps, right? We have to follow the steps. We have to walk through things in the right way. So here are the six ingredients that he sees. We need to see the sin. We need to have sorrow over it. We need to confess it. There is shame for sin. Then there's hatred of sin. And then we turn from sin. So as Thomas Watson would say, and I think we're all familiar with, we actually see this here in in Jacob's life, and we see this all over the Scriptures. Many times we see sin. Sometimes we don't begin that step towards sorrow. Or sometimes we see sin and we have sorrow for sin, but then we don't get to that next step of confession. Or sometimes we'll confess our sin, but then there's not shame. That we don't move in this path and get to the end where we actually turn from our sin, where we actually live a life in a trajectory that is different. Now, thankfully, we have pictures here that we see a bit of a picture. There's actually these steps that if you walk through these steps, I did that this week in thinking of these steps of, uh, of Thomas Watson and, and how it is that we should be people walking free. These are all present in this picture here. That we're starting to see that he is walking free of the very things that we're holding him slave in bondage and is turning towards the things of God and rejecting idols, rejecting his family's desires of what it is that this should look like. Now, along the path, are there places that the recipe for repentance could have been messed up? Are there places that we see elsewhere that repentance seems to be heading that way? And then we go, ooh, Israel, did it again. Didn't quite get there. Didn't follow the full steps. This recipe didn't turn out the way that it was supposed to. You didn't turn from your sin. Of course, we see that all over. We see that in places like Deuteronomy. We see that in places like Judges. We see that in places all over Scripture. And we see that in the New Testament as well. That the churches are corrupt. The picture of the churches in the New Testament, that the letters that Paul writes and others, they're not because it's a perfect church. They're writing to correct a church. To help them to see their sin. To confess their sin. To move in this path towards repentance and then turning away from one's sin. But even as we look to this, we cannot forget that even in spots like this, it really is a foreshadowing of the covenant that we see with Christ. That He is that perfect keeper of the covenant. That us living on this side of Christ, we see the fullness of the Savior of what it was that Israel was looking for, the twelve tribes were needing, and how it is that we look to this place and we see and we know, yeah, sin, I see it. But sometimes we just kind of look at it and we go, oh, that's not that bad. Times are good. Shechem looks nice. It's got a good trade route. Casually and slowly, it might be over 10 years, it might be over 10 minutes, we start to begin to see how sin is actually very treacherous. It's very deceptive. It promises one thing and it actually leads to a lot of hardships. It leads to things that really, really hurt us. As we walk through this and we think about this and we see this, we are reminded continually, though, that God does keep the covenant. In verse 11, it says that I will build many nations from you. Yeah, Jacob, I know that you've failed. I know that your sons have done murder. 
I know that horrible things have happened to your daughter. Could things have looked a little differently if, if, if we had unfolded this path a little bit differently, perhaps? But it's important for us to see that when we look at this, the new covenant, as God puts forth that covenant of grace that he has given to us is in the finished work of Jesus. It is nothing less than the finished work of Jesus. It is nothing more than the finished work of Jesus that we need to cling to. We need to, by faith, accept the gift of faith that he has given to us and live in such a way that when our hearts are wayward, we find hope in a passage like this. Not that Israel is broken and we should be like them, but we should look and say how incredible God and his mercy is to move and speak to people like Israel, to people like us. For whatever area we feel a little bit broken, for whatever area we came up just a little bit short, he is at work in those places. Our lamb has come, and when you fall like Jacob, God in his mercy will correct you. God in His mercy will confirm the certain promises of God. He will show that He has perfectly kept the covenant for His people. Not to those outside of the covenant, but He keeps it for those inside the covenant. Now I'm stressing this a lot, the importance of the covenant here, and we see in the types and shadows so much of Christ here. So much of Christ comes through all of the pages of the whole Bible, but it's important for us for this is the foundation of where we stand. It has nothing to do with reading this and going, man, don't be in Israel, be like... No, it is that we are to be like Christ. As He calls us to be. That is the foundation that we actually see and we live and actually in these passages as we move past this confirmation and we start to begin to see this completion of what it is that God has done. We actually see a really important component of the completion of this journey because as we walk through the completion, what happens to the man Jacob here? From 35 until 49, when he, when he passes away, when he confirms to his 12 sons what it is that has happened, as we see with these 12 sons that are here, the 12 nations of Israel, he goes by Israel. He lives as Israel. Is there hardship in those passages? You better believe it. We're stopping at Genesis 36, but next is the story of Joseph and his brothers selling him into slavery. Spoiler alert. But we walk through this and we see that there is this certain promise that God is completing the things that He said He will do, that He is making him Israel. He is making him into the man whom God has called him to be and he has not lived in light of. Now even actually in these, this last half of this passage, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hardship. And as we walk into the hardship and as we walk through the death and as we look to the things that we see of the twelve tribes being established, how he's returned towards Bethel but not quite there and now he has gone to Bethel and what happens but this nursemaid dies and it's amazing the fact that she even makes this narrative that we go, man, there's something powerful in that that the Lord has for us that even... This nursemaid of, of, of Jacob makes the narrative that she has died. There's something probably likely to him that is powerful of who she is. But it's powerful, and I really think in some ways this is beautiful. You may look at this and you may become a bit quizzical as I think, Pastor Billy, this does not look beautiful. This does not look like a picture of health 
and prosperity. It looks like struggle. It looks like the patriarchs have painted this picture of hardship for us that I don't know what to do with sometimes. It's actually got more sin. It's got more death. But we have to wrestle with this. For actually, I think what's beautiful about this is it's in this story, this is the picture of what God is weaving and that He is putting together in this picture from what we've seen of Genesis 3, the promise of He will send a second Adam. The first Adam failed. So we're looking for that second Adam, and as we look to this passage, as we think and we come to the conclusion of Jacob's life, the question needs to arise for the people there, is this our second Adam? No. He's fallen short. He did not do the things that he should have done. He did not keep the law perfectly. Just like Adam didn't. Just like Abraham didn't. Just like Isaac didn't. Again and again, the cycle of our people as the family of God is a story of hardship. But it's a story of beauty, for it reminds us that from dust we come, and to dust we shall return. As Genesis 3 tells us, as we walk through this picture of death, there's a certain reality that without Christ, that is what is coming. That even in these temporary bodies that we have, and even as we walk through these things, we see that God is truly confirming the promises of who He is, and He's completing these things in spite of hardship. The passages like chapter 34 and here even in chapter 35 where it walks through death and it walks through coming up short and not making it from Shechem back that little way. And then what happens here? His dad dies. His first maid dies. His beloved wife dies. There is hardship in walking with God. But there are certain promises that we actually see very shortly after that that are claimed and confirmed, and then he lives like Israel. Now, I think it's really important for us to drift back to the question of where it was that we started, of why it is that things feel so broken. Why does God unfold hardships and blessings at the same time? For I must remind you that this is the inspired and errant and authoritative Word of God. There's no mixture of error. These passages aren't here by accident, and they're not to tell us how to be like Israel. But actually what was going on is this picture that is really powerful, that the sovereign God is revealing His restraint of sin in a way that actually shows us more of Himself. Could He have done it in a different way? Of course. But the author, Moses, actually walks through and shows us that he is restraining sins differently than how we would have restrained sins. Ian Duguid, who actually is a uh, PCA pastor up in Pennsylvania, uh, and comments on this passage, he says this well, God was reforming Jacob into the Israel the world needed to see. He could have held back him from sinful drifting. He could have been a faithful parent and decisive leader. Jacob could have confronted his sins earlier before it bore such terrible fruit. So why didn't God? It is because God's mercy and grace would be more clearly evident to Jacob and the future world by this means than any other. So I'll pause with a quote there. So what do we mean when we say this? 
We mean that God allows for the unfolding of human history in such a way so that when we see sin, we see that His grace abounds all the more. So that as we are seeing the brokenness of this world, we are seeing the extravagant grace of the living God. That as Brian Chappell would call it, the unlimited grace of God. That is what we see in passages of brokenness. That the promise is certain. Now I have to address this because are, are we to sin all the more? Romans tells us absolutely not. Romans would say no. His Word would tell us no. By no means. But when we see sin, for this world has it. Our hearts have it. We see that His grace abounds all the more. It would be really egregious for Him to overlook such a sin of what's gone on throughout this lineage, throughout this line of Genesis. But He does. It would be really egregious on our terms for Him to forgive our hearts. But He does. He steps towards us and He says, my grace is sufficient for you. I need you to see that. That it's not about the extravagant mess that you have made. It's about the extravagant grace. As actually Ian Duguid's wife would say, it's extravagant grace of God as she pulls on the works of John Newton before her. This abundant, unlimited grace as we think about and see this, these, these three C's, this correction and the confirmation and the completion of God. Of course it's there for Jacob. But for those of us who by faith believe and have the gift of faith that is given to us, it is for us as we wrestle in this tension of things that are already complete, but we yet do not feel it. See, we're not here to live in the feeling. We're here to live in the truth of the reality of what His Word says and the promise and the certain history of God's people both in the past and that in eternity to come. So my hope and prayer for us today is that you would see that while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. That while we still sin, Christ died for you. He truly has corrected His people. He confirms His promise to Israel and to you as people of the covenant. He's brought it to very real completion. He's changed His name. And even more so, it's completed in Christ. That perfect Lamb. Our hearts will fight against this again and again. Jacob's been fighting against this for 30 years since he met God at Bethel. How encouraging. His grace is for you. His grace is for me. Take an honest look at your sin today. Consider the remedy that Thomas Watson would have for you. To look at your sin, to see it. But make sure you get all the way to that sixth step that you hate your sin and turn from it. And see that His grace is for you. He truly is a covenant-keeping God. It is certain. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we this morning thank You that You are with us, that Your Word is true. 
that You have kept the promise to us, that You correct us in kindness, but You have brought it to completion in Christ Jesus, that this work is done. Though we see and know in Scriptures it is done, we feel the weight of the brokenness. Help us to look past the brokenness and see that Your grace is sufficient for us. It is only in and through the perfect work of Christ on our behalf that this is possible. So help us to live in that today. We love you, God. Help us to love you more. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.